You're listening to Resilience Recast, Episode 4, The Rise of Women, Empowering Women to be Resilient in Their Careers. This podcast series is brought to you by Salesforce, a trusted digital advisor to business in partnership with Reuters Plus. To find out more about how Salesforce helps businesses transition to a digital work-from-anywhere world, visit salesforce.com. Hello and welcome to Resilience Recast. I'm Nisha Pillay. COVID-19 has impacted women in profound ways, amplifying the inequalities that they already faced. According to McKinsey, one in four women considered downshifting their careers or leaving the workforce altogether during the COVID-19 crisis. Facing the increased demands of childcare and other responsibilities at home, many have seen no other alternative. With pandemic recovery on the horizon, how far has this societal shift set women back in terms of gender equality? And how do we ensure that women around the world are empowered to continue their careers? But first, here's Gavin Patterson, President and Chief Revenue Officer of Salesforce. Well, we're facing a number of crises at at the moment. Obviously, the health crisis with the pandemic, the climate crisis, but there's also a crisis around inequality and social justice. And I think business is an important role to play here. Having a diverse team, um, being seen as driving positive change and being a platform for change, these are critical issues that a business can play a role in. Diverse teams have better results. The data is really clear cut. Having a team that reflects the diversity of your customer base, reflects different thinking styles, different experiences, just gets better outcomes. Um, And as leaders, it's absolutely imperative that we focus on building that type of diversity in our organization. This is a really important discussion and it's an ongoing discussion, I think, for for business. And it has to be one of the the top three priorities that every business leader is, is looking at at the moment. Later in the podcast, we'll be talking to Pip Marlow, CEO of Salesforce in Australia, New Zealand and ASEAN. But first, we're joined by Barbara Petrongolo, Professor of Economics at Oxford University. Barbara Petrongolo, welcome to Resilience Recast. You're known for your work into gender inequalities in the labour market and unpaid domestic work in the home setting. How does this COVID-19 pandemic differ from other big economic shocks in terms of the impact on gender inequality, its gender impact? Thank you, Nisha. Yes, there are quite a few features of this crisis that differ from what we have observed in previous recessions. So, for example, most previous recessions have been defined, rightly so, as man's recessions, in that they were hurting men much more than women, mostly because they affected male-dominated sectors, like, for example, construction and manufacturing. This time is different because due to social distancing, the sectors that have been hit most severely include, by definition, those with most frequent interactions like retail, hospitality, leisure, and these sectors employ a much higher share of women. So if one simply looks at the structure of the economy, one would think that women have been more severely hit than men. But offsetting this, there is the fact that some women are also overrepresented in sectors that have been defined as critical to the COVID response, so typically health and social care. So it's kind of hard to tell whether men or women are expected to bear more severe employment and earnings losses. So, for example, in my work with Claudia Hukau on the UK, we found that men and women in the first lockdown 
experience kind of similar fraud rates and also earnings losses. So there isn't like a huge difference if one simply look at men in general and women in general. But then if one looks at the divide between parents and childless individual, earnings losses for mothers have been larger than for women without children. And then if you just look at outright job loss instead of furloughing, you would find that mothers are more likely to have lost their jobs than fathers. Although overall, it should be said that the incidence of job loss in the UK was relatively low compared to other countries, for example, like the US. So it's a very complicated picture then. Are there any generalizations we can make? And to what extent do you think that your study, which is based on UK data, will be replicated elsewhere, Professor? Something that happened in the same way around the world was the impact of the crisis on the total imp- on the total volume of childcare and domestic work. And this was, could be probably generalized in every country of the world because the schools and the nurses were closed everywhere. So this meant that all education and childcare services were brought in-house. And this, of course, matters for gender gaps because women provide the best part of childcare, typically a baseline, I mean, And importantly, they seem to bear almost the entire earning penalty associated to having children. To a large extent, with its impact on the overall childcare needs, the pandemic has replicated some pre-existing patterns in in the division of labor. But then of course, this was happening at a much higher level with a much higher overall load. So to give you an idea, before COVID, mothers and fathers were doing on average, say, 16 hours per week and eight hours per week, respectively, of childcare. So women were doing about twice as much as men. With the first lockdown in the UK, mothers are doing an extra eight hours and fathers are doing an extra five hours. So there is a larger gap. That's fascinating. Now, your research was done on data from last year, 2020, but the pandemic is still ongoing, at least in the UK and in much of the world. Are these patterns persisting? So. It's kind of difficult to get very, very recent data from for like labor market or time use. But for example, for 2021, the most sort of reliable data come from the number of people on benefits, uh, like job search benefits and like uh, employment related benefits, which are not exactly the same as the unemployment rate, but they're sort of a good approximation. So if you look at, for example, January 2021, you see that the figures on benefit are very close to those on the last quarter of 2020 and about twice as large as the figures in, say, February 2020. So people on benefits went from 3% in February 2020 to 6% in January 2021. That's interesting. And is there any suggestion that when these support schemes like furloughs begin to be withdrawn, that women are more likely to lose their work than men? I've seen some speculation around that, but I don't know if there's any evidence that backs it up. Well, it really depends how the return to work habits for men and women could be affected by by the pandemic. So something that we have noted since the first lockdown is that women were more likely, slightly more likely, if they had children, to ask for voluntary reductions in working hours because of, for example, childcare responsibilities. So this may affect something about the long run. But something that I think is probably more interesting to think about the long run is that in the spousal division of childcare that happened, for example, with the first and the second lockdown, it is true that mothers were taking a larger share, a larger share on average of the higher childcare needs. 
But at the same time, there was a sizable minority of families in which fathers became the main person in charge of childcare. So for example, instead of just looking at hours, if you ask families the question, who is most in charge of childcare? It could be the mother, it could be the father, it could be split equally, it could be someone else. Pre-pandemic, the, the, there was a tiny, tiny minority of households in which the father was in charge, about 2.5, 2.6%. And then during the pandemic, the share of households in which the father was in charge grew up to 18%, something like 18%. So it's still a minority, but it's sizable now. So there are there is this kind of share of households that went against the tide. Against That's really dramatic. Can I just interrupt you there? That is such a dramatic change from 2% to 18%. What accounts for it? What's underlying that change? If you look at the occupations and the industries where mothers and fathers were working, there is about 60-65% of fathers who stay at home in the first lockdown, either because they can work from home or they'll be furloughed. So 63%, something like that, of fathers are staying at home. Among them, one third is living together, married to a woman who is working in a critical sector. So we're talking about families in which the father is at home and the mother is working outside the home and presumably she's working very long hours. And given that you cannot hire help to look after your kids during lockdown, there is just no other solution that the father takes care of the homeschooling and the childcare. There's basically just not another way. And why I think this is interesting, because evidence has shown that the parental division of childcare responds to a great extent to say underlying gender norms. But there's also evidence that the norms do respond to some kind of force changes, some shocks that are kind of external to the family that force some reallocation of home production and childcare. And this is what we have observed in this 18% of families. Now, the question is, is it expected to have a long run effect? And we have seen from other studies, studies that come from all sorts of kind of sources, for example, what happened after World War II with the mobilization of men in the US to what happens in some countries with the introduction of father's quotas in childcare. We have seen that these kind of sudden changes may actually start to introduce a sort of learning process and sort of evolution of gender norms that then in the new long run brings about a sort of permanent change in the kind of allocation of labor that we observe, even after any lockdown, after the recovery, et cetera. So I thought that despite the fact that women take on a larger share of childcare, this very important change in sort of 16% of families or so is, is interesting to, to kind of monitor and see what kind of effect it could have in the long run. A fascinating insight of yours there. And could I ask you, what are your thoughts on this debate that's been raging about whether working from home becomes a permanent phenomenon? Will it be a hybrid working system? There are all sorts of different models being discussed. Is there any work done on whether women and men are likely to view the long-term future of working from home differently? After one year and counting of working from home, it's probably hard to argue that certain jobs can only be done sitting in an office from nine to five, five days a week. So there has been this tremendous learning process about the potential of working from home. And what has been learned cannot suddenly be unlearned or ignored. So at least some part of the working from home habits are here to stay after COVID. Now, why does it matter for men and women? I mean, 
As we said before, due to heavier household responsibilities, women on average value working from home and also more in general, like shorter commutes more than men. And thus one may think that women might be more beneficially affected by working from home opportunities. Now, one caveat that I like to stress is that the associated work flexibility may come at a cost for women and men alike, whoever is choosing to work from home. I mean, one important question is to what extent many sort of high profile jobs will be doable from home, like full time from home. The other issue is whether really working from home may dilute someone's presence at work, might dilute their attachment to the workplace. So the question that we should really research is whether there is a value to being physically present in the workplace and interacting, say, face to face with your, with your colleagues and whether this may feed into, for example, promotions and career prospects. Because if one is asking a question about gender inequalities, it's really about um, occupational choice, different rates of promotion and different career prospects. And may I ask you your thoughts on resilience? Our podcast is called Resilience Recast. What do you think we need to focus on in terms of the effects of this pandemic on our resilience? Yes, I mean, resilience is definitely the kind of right word to indicate what it takes to live through this pandemic. Now, I, I will make a big distinction here. So people who say stayed healthy and could keep their jobs by working from home mostly had to cope with multitasking and the associated stress, but probably not much more than that. For people who were sick instead or lost their jobs or suffered domestic abuse, and the list goes on, resilience has a completely different meaning. So we're really talking about coping with very different impacts of the pandemic. Now, there is a survey that I was looking at uh, carried out by the Mental Health Foundation in the UK, which was showing that only a minority, surprisingly, of the UK population, something about 13, 15%, responded that they were not coping well with COVID-related stress during the first lockdown. So this refers to the first lockdown. So despite what people have been going through, I would say that 13 to 15% is a relatively optimistic figure. But we really have to, 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 to be clear that probably, first of all, levels of coping seem to have gone worse over time. So the second lockdown in this respect seems to have been a lot worse than the first lockdown. And secondly, these kind of effects have been worse, both in terms of stress and mental health and also long-term consequences for young people than for older people. So this is something very important to, 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 to monitor. Barbara Petrongolo, it's been great having you with us on Resilience Recast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Coming up, Pip Marlowe, CEO of Salesforce in Australia, New Zealand, and ASEAN. This podcast series is brought to you by Salesforce, a trusted digital advisor to business in partnership with Reuters Plus. To find out more about how Salesforce helps businesses transition to a digital work-from-anywhere world, visit salesforce.com. I'm joined now by Pip Marlowe, CEO of Salesforce in Australia, New Zealand, and ASEAN. Hello, Pip. Welcome to Resilience Recast. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you today. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. We heard from Professor Petrongolo that in the UK, women have borne the brunt of the pandemic in economic terms. That's what the data shows. What's been the impact in Australia, New Zealand, in ASEAN? Certainly at the peak of COVID, when we went into shutdown last year, about April and May, 
we saw about 8% of women in Australia lose their job versus 4% of men. So we saw twice the impact on females in the unemployment sector. But not just that, we saw immense pressure on women who are at the front line, nurses, teachers, cleaners, these industries with really high populations of women pulling at the front line and helping support and, and look after everybody. So it was almost a double-edged sword. We saw a lot of um, females displaced from their job and then we saw an intense amount of demand and need of teachers stepping up, nurses stepping up and cleaners stepping up across a number of professions. So it really put a lot of pressure, I think, into, you know, into the community, into families and into the workplace. You're the CEO of Salesforce in the region, and it's great to see a woman in such a senior leadership position in the tech industry. What conversations have you been having in the C-suite about the impact of the pandemic on women, your own staff, how to support them? Um, the conversations I would say I'm having externally have a couple of themes. The first theme is digital has become an imperative for every business from public sector to financial services, to healthcare, education, and small businesses. So if you did not have a digital agenda at the front of your business before COVID, you want one now. You know, COVID has shown all of us that you need a digital engagement with your staff, with your customers, with your stakeholders, because the way we'd always done business we couldn't rely on that anymore. Flying to see a customer or going to a meeting in, a, in another state, that just couldn't happen. And so I think companies surprised themselves with how quickly they stood up a digital engagement platform if they didn't have it, have it or did something to allow for scale. But now people are thinking and organisations are thinking, I responded and stabilised really well. Now I want to take this digital imperative and make it more sustainable, create better levels of experience. So that'd be the first element I would say really came through. Uh, the second element that I'm having with CEOs is you know, crisis-led innovation was everywhere um, through the, uh, you know, the originations of covid we all had to think differently because we were facing problems we'd never solved before. We needed solutions we'd never had before. So the amount of innovation that came out across um, Asia, across New Zealand, um, across Australia was exceptional. I mean, the team in New Zealand working with the Ministry of Health to really quickly stand up contact tracing and now vaccine management happened at a speed that, I, you know, just it was incredibly you know, inspirational to see how quickly people responded. So there's a sense of how can we take this level of innovation and sustain it into the future? So let's not lose the goodness that came out of that. And then the last theme, I think, you know, it's really coming through strongly from you know, businesses that I'm talking to around our people. So how do we build back a business, a way of working that is better than before? That means creating flexible work practices for diversity to flourish. So to have more new women in a number of these jobs, maybe more part-time and flexible work models. Um, how do we come back with a green lens on the business decisions we, we want to make? How do we be more sustainable, really thinking about the impact on our planet as we build back better? So um, I think those are the three themes that I'm really hearing from businesses across ASEAN and Australia and New Zealand. We heard from Professor Petrongolo that the domestic burden on women, the bulk of the domestic house care, child care burden is falling on women who are now having to do even more juggling than before. 
What have you done at Salesforce to address that? Have you introduced any new policies to help support your female staff? Certainly for us, we're really trying to pioneer a future way of work. And so we've said we we want this moment to be a slingshot, not an elastic band where we just you know, get stretched and go back. We want to actually slingshot ourselves to the future and build back better. So we're, we're going to be pioneering um, a whole new way of work on behalf of Salesforce, testing and learning out of Australia and New Zealand where we're creating a far more flexible work environment where we'll be doing, looking at each of the roles and understanding well, what, what is possible with that role. Maybe it can be 100% from home, wherever your home is, um, and let's figure out how we help you work in that way. Maybe actually you only need to come into the office once or twice a week, a month, and let's do that. So it's we're, we're creating some new you know, roles, work models to support more flexible work environment, but we're also giving people the systems to do that job in a different way. It's not like, oh, off you go, go make it happen. How do we support you culturally? How do we support leaders um, and managers looking after you in that way? Um, how do we create a work environment when you come into the office that supports um, more collaboration and creativity engagement versus just people sitting in front of a monitor? So how are we rethinking our uh, real estate to support that? And how are we supporting the behaviours and culture that needs to you know, support a more remote work? Um, creating new teaming agreements, uh, between teams so there's good transparency and accountability for working in these new ways so we're working really hard to create that environment that allows us to build back better. Early evidence seems to indicate that women want to work remotely well into the future to a greater extent than men and so the uptake of these kind of policies that you've been telling us about might be greater amongst women than men. So that in itself raises some questions about lack of visibility, for instance, for women going, going forwards. Do you think companies like Salesforce, other industries, other business leaders need to start thinking about the implications about working from home in terms of career progression for their staff? As much as we want to increase this flexible work environment and give people choice, we are at risk of creating a two-speed workforce where women take up the option of working at home and men go back to the office. And if what is valued is being at the office, we're actually going to take what we had before and make it worse because suddenly, you know, women will actually have feel the pressure even more to be doing the other unpaid work that is needed, obviously, and valued at home. So I think it is really important that we do not get into a, a, a gender-based work model. That is not good. And not just that, because we know best business performance comes from diverse teams. So if there's that diversity of the teams, not just, you know, gender diversity, but cognitive diversity, cultural diversity, if we're not finding ways for those things to blend in, then actually we're not mirroring the market we serve and we're not going to be um, achieving the business results we want. So I am very aware of that. And so for us, you know, in Australia, one of the things that I think is really important for us is access to affordable and universal um, childcare. So Australia currently is approximately the fourth most expensive country on the planet to access childcare. So if it's too difficult or too expensive to do that, there's a greater chance that the female will stay at home. Australia today um, produces one of the most highly educated female um, through, through female education system with some of the best rankings in the world for tertiary education for women. Yet our workplace participation for females is in the low 50s. So we, we, we produce 
you know, uni graduates, one of the highest percentage of university graduates, of female graduates on the planet, but we drop down dramatically in participation. Our neighbours in New Zealand are at number six for workplace participation for females. So we have a real challenge in creating the fabric that allows this educated workforce to, to drive forward. And I think that's our opportunity in Australia. In a world where COVID has shut borders, in a world where we have had so much skilled migration driving our population growth, if we can take our workforce participation and make it the same for men as it is women in this country, we'll add, I think it's about $180 billion to um, our, our GDP. We have a huge opportunity if we could just even that out. So um, I think it's a real challenge for us that we need to solve. Companies need to solve it. Um, and I think companies like ours need to make sure that when we bring women into the workforce, we pay them equally. We've spent over $16 million at Salesforce closing the gender pay gap. And I would call out that sometimes that means paying men who are not paid equally. Now, predominance does go to females because we, we've seen that. And, and we look at that pay gap every year and make sure we fund closing it. But there are some things that need to happen outside of what businesses can solve. And I think access to um, affordable childcare is, is a big part of that. This is clearly an issue very close to your heart, Pip. So I'm going to ask you this. Do you think that business leaders like yourself should be playing a bigger role in influencing government policies to give women more support, to give them better access to affordable childcare? Oh, yeah. Well, I think um, business can be the greatest platform for change. And, you know, obviously I think government is very important, but we can't wait. You know, typically legislation, regulation trails, you know, solving a problem. Businesses can be at the forefront of that. But if you're going to do that as a business, you can't just talk about it. You have to align your dollars, your time and your action because you really care about it. That's why I think it's important to do things like, you know, gender pay, back, pay, um, pay gap analysis and not just do the analysis. I hear a lot of companies do analysis. But they don't spend any money closing the gap. We need to be um, engaging with government around what are the policy and the fabric that we need to put in place. And, and it was amazing through COVID, the Australian government made childcare free for a period of time. Incredible. And they did that because they knew that so many of the people who were accessing um, that childcare well, they were the nurses and the teachers and suddenly they needed it because, you know, parents that might have been helping look after their grandchildren, you couldn't do that. All of these things where families and the natural community have helped out, well, COVID took that away. So we need something more sustainable in order to support equal participation of women. Only other thing I'll add to that is we have to also support parental leave and encourage men to take parental leave and support men doing flexible work and partaking in, in flexible work options. Because if only females take it up, we, we'll get back to that two-speed economy we talked about. Let's take a closer look at the potential opportunities up ahead. The tech industry, as we know, is notoriously male-dominated. But if indeed the tech industry embraces remote working as a matter of policy, which sort of seems to be the case, is there an opportunity here then to create new pathways for women into tech? The challenge is now the system needs to change. So the people in power need to change the system to make it more welcoming and more equitable for everybody. And it is very difficult in a system that potentially has been built by men and delivered for men, even unintentionally, 
Um, you know, we if you think about in Australia, we do superannuation. So when you um, work for a company here in Australia, there's an amount that basically goes off into um, the company pays to go into almost like a super fund for you when you get older. I think in the US they do 401, but the company is legislated to pay here. When you go out on maternity leave as a woman or parental leave as a woman, that payment stops. Now, at Salesforce, we don't stop it. We keep paying that to you even though you're on parental leave. The government does not require us to do that. It requires us to pay you when you're not on leave, but for the rest, but we choose to pay above and beyond because we know that there is a, a gap, like a retirement gap. Are you saying that that's one of the things that um, by law, a company should be required to do, or perhaps there should be more targeting by law to change the system and make sure that more women advance. Well, what are your thoughts on that? So if we want to have children in the future, we're going to have to support women having careers and not having that step off to have um, children be detrimental to the career. And I speak to women today who are too scared to like, oh, should I have children? What will that do to my promotion? What will that do to my retirement? So we need to create systems that don't punish women for doing what only females can do. So yes, we should be looking to legislate and support women in that perspective. Good stuff, Pip. I'm going to ask you your thoughts on resilience. Our podcast is called Resilience Recast after all. What takeaways are you going to carry forward into the future, into your leadership, from this unprecedented year on resilience? Resilience is about your ability, how well you recover and how quickly you recover. And what I saw in this last year was, was quite um, a range of people's resilience. And, and when I peeled it back, what I realised was the people who I saw recover faster, the people who you know got back on their feet um, fastest were the people who have been through a lot of challenging times before. This did not end their world. It was tough. I'm not saying it wasn't emotionally tough. People lost lives and livelihood. That is serious. But the people who I saw, as much as I could say, get, get into the thrive state were the people who'd had multiple challenges and failures before. And I think in organisations, the thing that I'm thinking even more about in my organisation is how do I give people more room to fail, to build the resilience over time so that when they have their first tough experience, it doesn't completely derail them? We have to embrace learning and some failure on the path to greater resilience and greater sustainability. So culturally, finding ways for safe learning, which allows us to share our, our losses and challenges and build a bit of resilience and know that they didn't end, you know, it wasn't the end of everything. That's my big learning. And as a leader, I think the culture that I create for people to do that safely is one of the best gifts that I can give the organisation to make everybody more resilient. Brilliant stuff. And I can't wait to catch up with you in a year or two to find out how this new policy and approach is going down. For now, though, Pip Marlowe, thank you so much for joining us on Resilience Recast. It's been a pleasure. It's lovely to speak with you. Thanks for listening to Resilience Recast. As we've heard, the pandemic has had a disproportionate impact on women. As we embark on new ways of working, the resilient businesses of the future are likely to be those that create equitable work environments where everyone can thrive. In our next episode, we'll continue our conversations with business leaders with frontline experience in building and maintaining resilience for their organizations. I hope you'll join us again. From Mini Chapelle, goodbye for now.
This podcast series is brought to you by Salesforce, a trusted digital advisor to business in partnership with Reuters Plus. To find out more about how Salesforce helps businesses transition to a digital work from anywhere world, visit salesforce.com.